Welcome to High Impact Growth, a podcast from Demagi about the role of technology in creating a world where everyone has access to the services they need to thrive. I'm Amy Vaccaro, your co-host. So 2022 marks Demagi's 20th anniversary. And in honor of that, we decided to look back at five key pivotal periods of time in Demagi's history. We're doing so not as an exercise in navel gazing, but really as a way to extract learnings so that they can both help other organizations on their own journeys, as well as inform Demagi's path forward as we continue to grow and scale. So if you're a regular listener, you've maybe already heard the first two episodes in this series, one on the creation of ComCare and another on funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So today we're talking about funding we received from the USAID DIV program. This happened between 2010 and 2014. So USAID is the United States Agency for International Development, and their DIV program is their Development Innovation Ventures program. DIV is USAID's open innovation program that funds breakthrough solutions to the world's most intractable development challenges. By funding innovation and focusing on rigorous evidence, DIV impacts millions of lives at a fraction of the usual cost. The reason we chose this as one of our milestone moments was that this was really a time of incredible learning velocity at Demangi. So it was a time where we were getting rapid feedback from users across dozens of pilots and applying those learnings to get better on a week-over-week basis. In today's episode, Jonathan Jackson and I are joined by three incredible Demagi employees. Kriti Milhotra, who's an impact advisor in the office of the CEO, Jeremy Waxman, who is global director of division operations, and Sri Ranganathan, who is a director of customer success. Hi, I'm, I'm Kriti Milhotra, and I have been at Demagi for a little over eight years. So my background is in math and sort of computer science. Uh, I was a very varied, interested person during my college days. I moved into the corporate sector right after I graduated and found that that was not a great fit for me. I did not particularly feel motivated to wake up in the mornings. I also followed my friends to the Magi. So at the one company that I worked at after I graduated, I had made two very good friends. One of them was very particular and driven and already knew that she wanted to be in the impact space, in the global development space. And she found the Magi. She moved to India for the Magi. Our second friend followed a year later, and I followed a year after that. So I, I followed a couple of my friends to, to the Magi, and during the eight years here, have had a wide variety of experiences. The majority of the time was spent in the India office. I'm really excited to talk today about the, the div phase, um, which I joined towards the end of and have, I think, a very different perspective than Jeremy and Shri will Thanks so much, Kati. And over to you, Jeremy. Thanks. I'm Jeremy Waxman. I am the Global Director of Division Operations. I joined Demagi back in, I think, in 2012. Um, I was fortunate to spend a portion of my undergraduate time in India, about a year and a half. So I had a little exposure to the international development space and was thoroughly turned off from all of it um, and found myself a few years later working for the Department of Defense, of all things, supporting uh, technology development. I've always been interested in the intersection of health and technology, and so I was about to go to nursing school when someone forwarded me an email from Demagi looking for someone to, from from my read of it, to kind of wander around India and hang out with some community health workers. 
that sounded pretty fun for a year. So I deferred my nursing program. I went over, went over to India as what was called a field fellow at the time. And sure enough, did get to go hang out with a bunch of community health workers and, and build some apps for them. And then 10 years later, I'm still here. Lots of new challenges along the way. And so it's been, been really interesting. This was definitely, it's fun to reflect on this period, which was really a lot of what drew me in and got me really excited about this particular intersection of, of health and technology. What an interesting path. And I love that you're still here 10 years later. That's awesome. Um, Sri, over to you. Yeah, my name is Sri Ranganathan, and I also joined the Magi in 2012. My background is in business management, and I did a fellowship called the Grassroots Fellowship Program, which was kind of, you would spend, you know, you'd spend a month working with a local NGO in sort of different rural communities in, in India. And so I did that for, for a couple of months, and then I really liked the organization and, and kind of you know, joined, joined as an employee. And then the next two years, I spent spent time just like traveling across India and visiting various organizations and kind of learning about the different programs that they were doing. And I, that's kind of like what, what sort of led to the sensitization of the social sector. And, and I was really sort of keen to, to, to sort of grow more professionally in the sector. And then I came across the Magi and, and then what felt like a really long interview period, I just happened to join, join the Magi. <laughs> In 2012. So, so yeah, but I, I really then sort of, I had no technology background, none of that, but you know, somehow the Maggie said, yeah, you'd, you'd be a fit here. And, and so that I came in and really understood kind of the work that I was doing. And, and it really got me interested in sort of the journey of technology and, and impact for, for frontline workers. And, you know, and, and here we are, yeah, 10 years, 10 years since. That's awesome. All right. So today we're going to be talking about this, this div funding. We'll start with a little bit of the sort of the what and what it was. We'll talk about why it matters and what it means today. So I want to start with you, John. Where were we at as a company when we were applying for this funding? Yes, yeah, so as you heard on the last episode, we had already decided that we wanted to make Comcare into a product, but there was a lot of work to do in realizing that vision. And when the DIV program first came out from USAID, it was specifically designed to make these breakthrough investments to be a different type of grant mechanism than USAID had traditionally done before. And so we were very excited when we heard about it. And we were actually in the first cohort of awardees uh, when DIV was first launched all the way back in 2010 or 2011, I think. And we were very proud of that. It was an initial 100K grant that allowed us to give away Comcare to 10 organizations, fund them to buy the phones, and then deploy it to community healthcare workers. So in the more traditional corporate sector, this is a very common like land grab strategy where you raise a bunch of venture capital and you give your software away for free to learn as much as you can and gain adoption. And so we took the elements of that that we thought were appropriate to our marketing approach and told Dip, hey, we think if you fund us, you know, 100K to go do this, we can then come back to you with a lot of evidence that we learn. And Div has a really cool staging process. We have a stage one, two, and three approach. So this was a stage one grant to kind of go prove if we equip 10 organizations, we're going to both prove that Comcare is really easy to use, that we can quickly develop high quality applications that the users want them, and then come back to you and say, can we go to stage two and do this on an even bigger scale? And the stage one results were positive enough that they supported us in stage two as well, which is when we then went to 40 different organizations in India. And it was a very fun and hectic period for the, the team that was there supporting 40 different organizations simultaneously over a two year period. And the beauty of that approach was it forced us to really figure out what were the common elements for success. Um, this had major learnings across the company in terms of how we thought about deployments. Also how we recognized organizations that maybe shouldn't have decided to deploy with us in the first place. You know, so you started to see the telltale signs of 
nobody can define exactly what benefits the solution is going to create, or nobody can give us the requirements. So we started to very quickly learn, okay, there's definitely going to be organizations that we were excited about that you wanted to stop the project with because it's actually not a good fit. And we then, you know, had that experience and that really led to a huge part of why our SaaS approach became successful was a lot of this work that we were able to do through the div mechanism. And for those listeners who are seeking funding, I want to give a big shout out. I think they're an extremely well-known mechanism today, but because it does sit within USAID, I think there can be some skepticism of how easy the mechanism is or how easy Div is to work with. And I just want to highlight, we've gone on to do future work with Div on other grants and it's just an amazing team and it's an amazing approach for funding if you're a good fit for their program. And so I highly encourage anybody listening who's trying to get their own ideas off the ground or scale to um, look at them for funding. So it's back 2010, 2011, USAID just rolled out this new Div funding program. We apply and we essentially get a 100K grant that's meant to help us basically give ComCare away for free to community health workers at 10 organizations in India. That was like a stage one grant. We were able to show like, yes, this is working. We're learning. There's, there's value being added here. We actually got a second grant from them to scale to another 40 organizations also in India. So I think you've, you've set this stage really well. And I'm just really excited because we've got Kriti, Jeremy, and Sri here who were at Damagi at that time, working with those organizations that were kind of those early recipients of, of ComCare. Um, and this was really like a proving ground moment for ComCare, right? Where we were trying to see like, is there, is there impact to be had here? Does this model work? How can we evolve it? So I know that there was, you know, first 10 organizations, and then another 40 that we worked with. Um, I'd love to maybe dig in on one specific organization just to kind of hear kind of what that, what this looked like for that particular organization. So I want to start with Catholic Relief Services, or CRS, um, and I'm going to start with you, Sri. I'd love to hear a bit about this particular proof of concept. You know, what were the goals? What was CRS trying to do? How did they want to use ComCare? Sure. Yeah. Their goal was, you know, mainly to, to look at two high burden districts. When we talk about high burden districts. It's, it's where the, you know, the, the, the health indicators are are some of the poorest in the region in Uttar Pradesh in, in the north of India. So, so CRS came in wanting to deploy technology to, to be able to work as a sort of be as a job aid for the health workers working in those regions and see if they can see if they can bring about better service delivery, particularly uh, for mother and children. And their focus was ensuring that they could track pregnancies, track the services that will be provided to these women by follow-up during the postpartum period, as well as track the children through their routine immunizations and so on, and ensure that all of this led to timely decision-making, timely supportive supervision, and so on and so forth. So, so really, like the, their goal was to provide the best job aid possible that could show transformative change in, in terms of how service was delivered in those communities and see improvement in those critical indicators that that I talked about earlier. That's awesome. And so, what did how did it go? What what happened with that project? And how did how did Comcare help those those health workers? Right. So initially, it was it was deployed to ten pilot users because that was sort of you know the, the testing ground. We wanted to work very closely with with the community health workers as well as government officials and the local NGO partners in terms of creating this application and and ensuring that it was covering all the different aspects that that we needed to demonstrate that success and. Just, you know, once we, once we sort of deployed to those 10 users and they were seeing positive results, what, what it then sort of died was that there is enough 
leverage within within the community. There was enough sort of buy-in from from government officials, and of course, with with additional sort of funding, there was there was scale up to to two blocks or sort of two administrative regions. And so that went to about 285 frontline workers from like the initial 10. And, and that was over a period of time. It didn't immediately go to 285, but essentially that was a scale up to, to two areas, including, you know, building a super supportive supervision application. There was a lot of research studies done there. There was also a cost cost benefit analysis study that was that was done. And, and there was there was a lot of different analysis done on this project to demonstrate its success. And and Catholic Relief Services is, is one one of our, you know, key key partners in in sort of not not just not just focusing on on the program delivery and and execution, but but also like working very closely with the Magi to you know to to showcase what technology can do for for programs. So yeah, and in some of the study, it showed significant improvements in service delivery across a lot of indicators that that we were looking at. So so really, this this became sort of the the bedrock for for us as as an organization, as as well as for for CRS and and for the communities that that we were serving. It sounds like we with that project, we were able to kind of demonstrably prove out that there was a positive impact on on outcomes through using ComCare for these community health workers. I know, Jeremy, you were also involved in this project and, and on the ground. Um, can you share a bit of your, your experiences? Sure. So when I arrived in India, we had those 10 or so pilot projects from Div1. All of them had launched. And now a few of them were scaling up. So this was a big moment to kind of try and understand why are some of these succeeding and scaling up to adding additional users or expanding the scope, extending the engagement that we had with those partners. And why did some never get off the ground? So taking a moment to focus on the CRS project, this is really the extreme in one way of a project that scaled up and sustained use. And when I reflect on why this project I think was, was so successful, one piece of it was the amount of uh, effort and thought that went in, even at the early stages to what's going to happen to this later on. How are we going to partner with the government? Where is this going to land if we're not here? How is this going to work if we're not here? Because they had a lot of kind of supportive supervisors that would go out and visit the community health workers for support with the technology aspect, but also generally for support with kind of supplementing the training that these community health workers had. And so they would think, how, how is this going to work when we're not here driving around and visiting these community health workers? Um, I think another big piece, which this is something we, we learned again and again, is that they really focused on making a tool that was valuable for the end user and not just something that was going to collect data in order to inform, you know, the, the programmatic level of, of staff that were, you know, doing reporting, that type of thing. A lot of times when we would meet with partners, it certainly came up in, in Div 2 when we were meeting with a lot more partners. You know, somebody at the headquarters may have signed up for this engagement. Uh, we show up and there's a, a sort of a lack of clarity about what are we actually going to do here? We only have two weeks. So there's only so much we can build out in, in two weeks. And so if the people driving that decision or the people who have to, you know, collect data or manually transcribe data, that's a strong incentive for them to design something that's going to address that problem rather than to design something that's going to be really useful for uh, community health workers and address some of the challenges that they have, I think. One of those challenges, and she might have more context on this, but there are a lot of users who had a low literacy or they would be working with clients who, you know, were, were illiterate. And so a lot of effort went into building out multimedia and both for the navigation of the tool, as well as for the counseling experience. Uh, I think those were kind of demonstrated commitments to those end users, to the community health workers that were building a tool that's going to be valuable for, for them, that they drive a lot of the 
you know, the content of that. And so I think that's something that also sustained use over time, which was, was really, uh, exciting to see those 10 users, even when we scaled up to 200, whatever it was users, those 10 users still remained kind of like key drivers of what the scope of this system looked like throughout and were, and were consulted during the entirety of the project. So just to kind of reflect back on some of the things you, you shared, Jeremy, it sounds like this was a partner that was really thoughtful about the long-term impact and how this, this tool would be used for the long-term. They were also kind of shared that ethos that I think we've talked about in other episodes around just the tool shouldn't just be for data collection. It should really be for making service delivery better and actually making the, the job of the people that are using the tool better. And then also just like being thoughtful around developing multimedia for, for load literacy users. Kriti, were you, were you on this particular project? CRS Remind in particular was actually one of my first field visits. So I uh, joined as a field manager. Um, Shri was the project manager. So we went on a field visit together actually to Kashambi. Um, I, that particular field visit didn't involve training, but we visited the partner office and we're making app changes for them. So my big memory really from that field visit is just how quickly we were making changes. It was quite an excellent experience and really the rapidity with which we were able to make those changes still amazes me. And like, as we've grown, the sequence in which we do things and build and test and the number of steps that we have and the number of people involved at any point have changed, but the fundamentals are very similar. I think it was Shri and me sitting with a partner, hearing what they needed next, kind of had our laptops open, making app changes in like basically real time. The testing process was more arduous than we were deploying directly onto phones to make sure that we were, you know, doing it. Now we have better emulators that allow us to do that a bit more quickly. But I think doing that whole process and just being able to release it live to the user. So the next time they were updating, they were getting those changes. So I think to John's point of, you know, we were we were at the phase of kind of productizing Comcare, trying to make it more of that platform. That was my introduction. So even now I work in Comcare pretty regularly. That is my that is my initial anchor. Like my first vision of Comcare is like what I did for CRS Remind in Kashambi, eating fresh mangoes in the middle of summer for what it's worth. So that particular story, uh, just in my journey at the Magi, is actually just quite quite special in various ways. So, although I didn't grow up in India, my family's from UP originally, like Uttar Pradesh, the state that this project was deployed in. It was very different for me to kind of go back to that state in the context of work and see how we're helping the community there, and I'm engaging with the community there, which was really cool. It's really really cool story, Kuti and. In the last episode, we talked about like trying to make Comcare and a platform that's easy to change and update. And, and that's like a beautiful story of that in action, being able to kind of sit with users, hear their feedback and iterate and change it in real time so that it becomes the most valuable tool possible for them. I want to, I want to share two fun facts. So one is, I think, you know, when Jeremy was talking about multimedia, it, it quickly struck me that we actually use the voice of one of the health workers in our multimedia messages. So the entire app is her voice. And so we kind of hired her uh, service to record all of the messaging. We bought a professional mic, so we would go to her house. And so just for context, like in order to get to Kochambi, you would have to take a train from like Delhi to like Lucknow, then sit on a bus and then, then take a final cab. And then we would finally get to like Kochambi. And then in order to get to the health worker's house would I either have to cycle there or, or whatever. So 
And so this is this this used to be our way of getting even the recordings done. So you'd have to go all the way there, make sure that you know the the health worker is done with her work and like you know she's finished all about other responsibilities and she has like quiet space in the house, no, no other noise, and we would do this recording. So it was just a fun recollection of how we used to even get the, get the recordings. And the second thing is that devices were basically brick phones. You know, when we talk about phones, we might make the assumption that we're talking about Android phones, but so a simple update of an app or, or a change in the app or, or anything of that sort is, is, was a completely different process back then. And also so much more emphasis on the, on the user experience or how little screen space there is. And so how smartly you had to design the app and train on the app such that it was, it was intuitive for the user. So I think you know, these two just struck a chord with, with what Jeremy and Kriti were talking about. I love that idea of like actually working with, with the health worker to record all the messages in the app. Um, I'm sure that made it even more impactful. So Jeremy, I wanted to ask you a bit, when you were working on this project, you were doing some research on intrinsic motivation and how to essentially, like, how can we use data that we're collecting to give feedback and improve performance. And I think you had some interesting learnings from that. Would you want to speak to that? We worked very closely, uh, a number of different people from Damagi with CRS. We were looking a lot about how to support supervision or if basically in any situation where you have these community health workers are spread across a huge geographic area. They might not have regular uh, internet connectivity or, or phones. So yeah, it's a challenge that was not a lot of direct supervision directly from people on the government side, but one of the uh, pieces that CRS felt was very important to the work that they were doing is that they were providing a lot more active supervision, whether that's support using the device, support in counseling, support in navigating some of the administration angle as well, or, you know, getting paid, things like that. and. That piece they were very concerned was not scalable. They didn't see how, how the government would be able to directly translate the model that they had of having people go out and visit all the community health workers to the, the government piece. So one angle of this was trying to take all this metadata that was being gathered in ComCare about worker activity and using that data to provide various reports, which would be given to supervisors. So how many... How often were uh, clients being visited? The app was really focused on, on prenatal care and on, and you know, newborn infant care and, and, and later times. And so there was a prescribed cadence. You want to visit each client once a month, that type of thing. Could look at the number of forms being submitted. And a, a lot of the uh, exploration was, can we present this data in a way which is useful to people on the government side so that they can identify who might need additional help, who is, you know, an, an all-star according to the data. That turned out to be more complicated than we thought. So I remember one day in particular, accompanying some of the staff to one of the, the block meetings where all the community health workers came in for supplementary training and to guess, turn in their record books, that type of thing. And uh, somebody had been given the output from ComCare, this kind of, here's the, the top performers by certain metrics and the lowest performers. Uh, and all that happened is the community health workers were, were kind of scolded in front of everybody for not having high enough numbers or high enough follow-up rates without any sort of probing or curiosity about why that might be or what, what the barriers were. So that, that felt like not, not quite the right solution there. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you had to make a pretty significant decision of like, whether you wanted to make this research a big part of your next year or not at one point. And I think you ended up moving to Shambi, so you can just speak to that as well. Sure. So after a few months in India with Damagi, I ended up in Mumbai, where I was living with another Damagi field person, Mohini, 
and working on some, some projects there. I got, got asked, do you want to keep doing what you're doing or do you want to move for the next four or five, six months to Koshambi uh, and just stay there and work only on this research project? Uh, and it, it definitely took me a minute to, to understand, wait a minute, what, <laughs> what does that look like life-wise? What does that look like substantively? Uh, I'm definitely glad that I ended up doing it. So that the research study that I was going to support, which was led by researcher Scott Lee, who at the time was with uh, Harvard Business School and Brian Durenzi, who now works for Damagi, uh, as well as support from a lot of other people. I know Sri, you were involved in, in the study as well. A lot of other people at Damagi supported. The basic premise was to understand, are there ways that we can take this, all this information which is being collected and give it back directly to community health workers in a way which is meaningful and can drive changes in performance. So a ton of time was spent developing visuals that could present this data back to the community health workers, ways of representing just the pure number of visits which had been completed in a month, how many follow-up visits had occurred within a certain amount of time, and then also being able to see for any given community health worker, where do you stand relative to other community health workers? Are, are you doing really well? Or do you think, are you towards the bottom and you might need uh, some support? growing your number of form submissions or increasing your, your follow-up rates. And so there's a lot, a lot more to it than that. But one of the exciting things was that we're really, there was no supervisor mediation. This data went right back to the community health workers so they could see their own performance and, and make of that data with what they wanted to. And we're delighted to see that, you know, for a good portion of the community health workers, being able to see that information was motivating. We saw and relative to community health workers who were given a control application, we saw uh, an improvement in performance. And I want to highlight a couple of things that were <clears throat> really incredible about this work. One was it really changed how I thought about the potential for additional features and capabilities in ComCare and how um, challenging the market was to support those. You know, Jeremy had just proved with the entire research team and CRS and the amazing local CHW staff that for zero marginal cost, you know, just the cost of the software feature, you can improve performance. And it was extremely difficult to get anybody to fund us to build the capabilities needed to do that at scale. In fact, it took many, many years. And one of our current dev grants is still based on this premise of how do you improve persistent supervision on the platform. So there was a hugely long sales cycle from um, learning that this could be highly impactful to convincing somebody to provide the R&D capital needed to actually implement it. And the second, um, Jeremy, was the uh, intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation in the workforce and how we saw very different outcomes based on whether the CHW filled out a questionnaire that said she was doing this job for intrinsic motivation versus extrinsic. And that was a fascinating result as well for us to understand how different our software was going to be able to amplify the work, these really important work which are doing based on why they were personally motivated in the first place. And that led to a lot of our thinking of what different segments are there of CHWs? How do we think about success across a large user base? As Sri mentioned, 285 workers that it's scaled up to, they're not all the same. They're not doing it for the same reasons. They're not trying the same effort. They're not looking for the same level of supervision. And so understanding we needed to not look at that workforce as one uniform workforce, but really sets of different types of workers was one of the key learnings that came out of that as well. Thanks, John. And I'll just add one, one little other thing there. I think that, that being able to measure that difference of the intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, we had a research team. So we had about six uh, researchers come in and conduct very long interviews with all of the community health workers. Um, these were about between two and four hours uh, to really understand how they got involved, what their barriers, what their motivators were, 
And just from an experience perspective, it was really incredible. Like a lot of these uh, community health workers maybe felt it was very awkward at first. Why does anyone want to know all this stuff about me? And a lot of them got really emotional where people felt like suddenly they could disclose a lot of this, um, the struggles that they had had or, um, you know, talk a little bit more personally about the motivations that they had for being a community health worker. And as, as John mentioned, it was really interesting to see that. And we looked at a lot of different ways of uh, categorizing community health workers by these different attributes and seeing that difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation was, was definitely quite striking. This is, this is really fascinating. And it's like such rich research and like foundational understanding of like what motivates a community health worker. How do you use data to, to give feedback on performance that actually improves performance versus creating, you know, a shaming situation like the one you described with supervisors. Are there ways that today, like the way ComCare is used, reflects that that research that you led? Yeah, we do a lot of thinking around this. And one thing I want to say is like, you know, mo many projects are different. The type of data that makes sense is different. But for the listeners, I want to bring it back to just think about yourself in your own organization. You know, what type of comparative metrics relative to your peer motivate you? Where does your organization invest in servicing data that they think is going to be helpful? And how often is your organization totally wrong that that's helpful, warranted, or worth the time investment? This is really hard work. Even at Demagi, you know, Kuti is the elected advisor within our office. And like, we're spending a lot of time going through stuff that is really difficult to know. Is this effort to surface these numbers and present the data in a certain way going to help? And one thing I want to say that was so critical in this project that Shri and Jeremy and Kriti and everybody was working on, we spent a enormous amount of effort on how to present the data back to the frontline worker in a way that was really understandable for a user at that literacy level with that level of digital familiarity. And we spent a lot of time paper prototyping. Jeremy mentioned working with Mohini in Mumbai. I used the paper-based prototype that she did field work on in my presentations for a long time, talking about how important it was to get this right, because you could have the right indicators or surface the right data elements and then present it in a way that doesn't motivate people at all, because it's not showing it relative to their peer group or showing it relative to their absolute goal. And there's a huge amount of work going in around this, but you know, for those listening who might not have been to rural India, to get a sense of this, you can also apply it to how you feel and think in your current job and like all of the metrics you find useful that your organization asks you to look at, all the metrics you find totally useless that, that people ask you to, to look at. If you're internal to the Magi, I'm sure you think all of our metrics are perfectly valid and, and super important, but I'm talking about other organizations, of course. <laughs> of course. Quick little footnote there. Like, I, I think one piece to also be aware of, there's some risk here as well that you low performers, you demotivate them more depending upon how you present back this information. And so that's, I think also something that we try to be cognizant of when designing these types of systems or, or feedback loops. Damagi has worked on, you know, 3,000 plus projects to date. And I think in this period, we got a lot better at project management and knowledge management and maximizing the success of projects. I'm curious to hear about some of, some of your learnings from those days. There are definitely a ton of projects happening very quickly at this time. So one piece was, you know, you can imagine we have a week of prep, two weeks on site, and then a week to kind of wrap things up and then it's on to the next project. So that's a lot happening very quickly. And I think that pace of learning was really uh, exceptional this time, whereas just every single, um, you know, if, if your project was two weeks later, you were going to benefit a good bit from what had been learned in that intermediary time. There weren't that many of us. And so at the time, a couple of the tools we used at Damagi, one is, uh, and for the India team, we had a call every week, which I remember that standing out as a quick way to quickly share because everyone was always out and about, like, here's, here's what I'm stuck with. Here's what worked really well. I had this breakthrough. 
uh, and how to do this type of thing. Um, and then we also had the field reports uh, where everyone around the company would send a um, an update kind of every week on, on what had happened, what they'd run into, successes, that type of thing. One example that stands out, these projects were almost all running on these J2ME brick phones. Sidebar that a J2ME phone would be a phone like one of the old Nokia brick phones. It's a version of Java designed for really simple phones. And so one of the things we would have to do is teach how to type in Hindi. And it was a, that was like a really big learning curve of how, how do we actually do this over? If we just have three days of training, you have to teach all the stuff about a phone and you're going to go through how to type in Hindi. And so just getting feedback like, oh, you know, we, we made these paper charts and this time we made three paper charts and this is what was on each of them. And that, then I was able to point back and forth between them. That was immediately applicable to the next project to be able to kind of um, make the trainings more efficient or be able to, to kind of draw upon those training techniques that, that because we often were at this point, we're leading a lot of the trainings or working closely with partners. I think all those training related learnings were immediately valuable for kind of the, the next project. For some of the first trainings that I was doing with the Magi in rural North India, you could already tell that we were applying the learnings that had come from these other projects right before. So one of the first things that I was a part of was, again, with maybe a group of 30 to 40 women with a wide range of, of literacy on J2ME break phones. And it, it it's interesting to reflect, like I, I used to do a bit of teaching and, and tutoring in the time before I had joined the Magi. And you kind of make a decision at one point when you're training someone on how to do something very specific, whether you're going to tell them like the exact steps to follow, or you have to convey a concept so that they're able to apply that concept. And I think the typing in, in the Hindi font thing, I remember having that moment where it's like, oh, we can't just tell them that if you're trying to type the letter girl, just press this button because there's so many different like diacritical marks and like things that vowels that have to get represented that we had to say, when you click on this screen and you see this layout, the button that is right below the thing you see on this screen, if you click this button, then that thing that you see right above that button is what will get pressed. So, you know, I was explaining how a phone works alongside that process. Um, and for a lot of people, this was the first phone they were they were holding. And I think even that even tying back to the the motivation points that we were talking about earlier, not in a supervisory context, but Early in trainings, you could really see people, like whether they were feeling more motivated because they were just better at phones when they were younger, they'd had a little more access to them. And people who just couldn't quite figure out how to turn a phone on or type very easily, being extremely demotivated at the end of like a two-day training, really seeing certain people just having turned that curve because we were like, no, you really can't do it. And they're like, oh yeah, like, wait, I can type my name in like 10 seconds. And it was taking me like 30 minutes before just to keep, you know, correcting things and going back and forth. So I think that that training piece in particular, I found that when I came in, we, we had those learnings and continued to apply them. What really sort of stuck out in those, in, in that initial period to, to what we even carry forward today, I think we, <clears throat> you know, CRS sort of stands out as a, as a gold star in terms of like the kind of organization that we work with. But one of the things that was really, that really made them that way was was the kind of inputs and the kind of collaboration that that they were bringing to to the table so what that meant is you know if we were say preparing for a training you know there was a very clear set of like checkpoints you know we would we would progress to the next stage if we went through like you know x stage and if we 
got to the next stage, then we, okay, like it's time, time to like now actually go to the district and call for this meeting to fix up a training and like everything like load, like clockwork. And, and that really also gave us a lot of learnings that we clearly applied to our partners. Some of, some of them could be difficult partners. Some of them could be just partners who are not like responsive, but you know, it's very clear to like protect Maggie's time and, and, and the people who work on these projects, you know, if, we're going to get to this stage, but, but share your responsibilities in terms of like how you need to be able to deliver X and we, we give you Y and so on and so forth. And, and that, that, that all sort of like, I could also attribute to, to how we learned to plan for a deployment. And, and there's many different checkpoints before you actually get the phone to the end user. And, and, and so they, they start training. And so all of that, they helped us design what our ideal like deployment would look like and, and ways that we could enforce that to, to protect, yeah, the people who are working on it as well as ensure it's a successful deploy. And those early learnings that she's mentioning there have continued to be philosophies that we hold today when we think about exponential growth. <clears throat> it's not just about the product, but it's about the processes and the knowledge management and the ways that work. And, you know, our partners didn't always like us coming in with this kind of predefined checklist of ways to get to launch and they weren't wrong that maybe they wanted to customize it differently. But the challenge was if we're trying to do 40 of these, um, cost effectively, like we can't customize it cost effectively. And that's something that we continue to this day, trying to find that right balance of saying, look, the, the industry overall has got to get way more cost effective, right? So we do way more value for money over the long run if we're going to achieve the SDGs. Sustainable development goals. Universal health coverage and many of the other goals the development sector aspires to achieve. And so that way more value for money across the industry means more standardization and lower cost per outcome. But that does come at the expense of any one project getting to do things exactly the way it wants to, whether that's us or anybody else in the market. And that's something that I think is still hard to figure out the compelling argument to get people to accept that their projects should kind of do things a standardized way so that everybody can benefit. And that's true at the software level, that's true at the process level, that's true at the program level. So clearly this was a really rich learning period. You heard about CRS, which is an example of a really impactful pilot and the research done on motivation. But we also had some real fails and learnings during this period. Jeremy, can you speak to one of those examples? Sure. Just to provide the story here a bit. So uh, I was working on, this was not a, a Div 2 project, but it was very similar structurally. We kind of went in with our J2ME phones, worked closely with a partner, build out an app. Uh, this particular app was for early identification of pregnancies. And this program, because it had a little bit of additional funding, went to a larger number of users more quickly. I think maybe there were 70, something like that. Just as many of our projects, the community health workers were very generous with their time to kind of test different things or are kind of like in Shri's example to do recording. And so we built out this application. The partner is very enthusiastic, at least the leadership of the, of this particular NGO wanting to, you know, go ahead and, and get these phones out there, conduct the trainings. And in particular, get all of the community health workers to register all of their clients in the phone. Not, not just as they were doing their work, but getting ahead of, you know, ahead of things and typing them all in. As we've mentioned, that's uh, no small task to do on a, on a little J2ME phone typing in, in Hindi. So they, they went ahead and did that. So I know the community health, health workers you know, were excited about this. They uh, saw a lot of value in it, at least based on the, the feedback that we were receiving and what we could see from the initial use. And so I was feeling pretty good about that. And then I was hanging out in the office and I overheard something about the office 
closing. Uh, and it turned out that this partner's uh, funding had ended. Uh, they hadn't told me yet, but they were uh, wrapping up operations. Uh, so they would be, uh, you know, I knew this project was coming to an end, but the the uh, the thrust of the project had been it's going to be handed over to the the local and municipal government. They would be, they'd already been involved a bit. Uh, but over the subsequent weeks, it became clear that that handover wasn't going to happen. Uh, and that in the, the following weeks, this project would end and the phones would be taken back from the community health workers because they were property of the, the organization or something to do with how this particular effort was funded. And so all these workers had gone through done all this legwork to get things registered. And then after they'd finished that up, the phones were just taken right back from them. We, we did spend some effort trying to figure out, can this, is there another partner who could support continuing this effort and, and couldn't find someone to do that in the end. And I remember them telling the community health workers during this meeting, they were explaining what was going to happen and they were taking the phones back and they said, well, we're going to, we're just figuring out what to do next and we'll, we'll get these phones back soon. And that, that was really upsetting because my understanding was that that wasn't going to happen. And, and indeed those phones just sat in an office somewhere afterwards. And reflection on this, you know, there's, uh, I'm sure there's lots of reasons why different things work or don't, don't work out. But I think in this instance, it seemed like a net negative. Like we've taken a lot of time from all these community health workers, both to develop the tool, to participate in trainings, to register all of their clients. And then it was just all taken away immediately after that with, with kind of, uh, not, not full transparency about what was going to happen. And so thinking about the impression that that leaves with those community health workers, why, why would they participate in something like this in the future so willingly? It's just a waste of time. They're not compensated for that extra time. There's no particular value to them. And so, you know, in these early days of 40 projects, we want to really be open to all different types of projects and all different partners. And we want to try a lot of different things, but thinking about, you know, not only what's the right match or what do we need to screen for in order to feel like this is a good fit. We don't want to push anything on anyone. You know, when we're doing follow-up as well, I remember for a while, there was a big push to see which, which of these div POCs, these, uh, proof of concept projects, these pilots are still using the system and then trying to call them and say, you know, oh, you know what, I see that you're not being, you're not using the system. Is there something we can do? I'm trying to figure out, well, maybe there's times where we just should, should be very intentional about pulling back and, and not trying to, to put effort into things that we know aren't going to go anywhere. That learning came out of the first div grant where we put in a ton of effort to make sure all 10 were successful and then we launched all 10 because we thought we wanted to do that and both needed to demonstrate that to USAID to get to stage two. But then when we wrote the stage two grant, we we're like, we're thinking about this wrong. You know, this needs to be a funnel of projects where we first solicit an RFP to see if people are interested in the first place, then try to launch them, but then assume some fraction of the ones that get launched will stop doing the project. And then assume some that keep doing the project don't want to scale and then, you know, keep going down. And I think this is one of the huge difficulties our industry faces is like not being willing to let things fail or stop projects when we clearly realize there's a good fit. I remember a personal story. There's an organization, a global IMGO that we work closely with and still today. And in a, one of the POCs that was <clears throat> a similar program based in Africa, they had applied and it was the headquarters office who had applied. And when we went to their office in West Africa, there was a ton of friction in getting the requirements and trying to set up this project that got escalated up to me and their headquarters. And they're like, yeah, you know, the office really doesn't know what they want to do. There seems to be a lot of, you know, pushback from the country office. I'm like, well, why did you guys apply if it sounds like they don't want it? And they're like, oh, we applied at headquarters. And I'm like, whoa, 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 that this is not our fault. This is like headquarters and country office problems. Uh, obviously we shouldn't do this project if there's not sufficient demand, because even when there's sufficient demand and even when the app's well designed, there can be all these opportunities for the project to fail. 
as Jeremy mentioned. And so I think looking at the progress of digital adoption as a funnel is one of the common things we do in, in other technology sectors that we need to apply to digital development. But unlike other technology sectors, the cost of failure is extremely high, but it's not borne by the organization, it's borne by the user. As Jeremy mentioned, those users are not going to be much more skeptical by the next project that comes to them saying, hey, I have a great solution because they're like, well, I've heard that before and you're just going to take this phone away or drop the support in six months. And so while we learn and it's helpful for us to view as a funnel, that's an incomplete view of the world because there is a real cost to equipping users and then dropping support for the application and dropping support from the organization. So I think we do need to have that mindset, but also realize these aren't, you know, you can't just fail for free. Um, those were users. You took the time to train, you got excited about the application and then you stopped supporting them. I feel like I'm getting a really clear picture of what this time was about for Demagi. I'm curious, though, why do you think this funding mattered so much for Demagi and what are your key takeaways from it? I think like just kind of like where where uh, John and Jeremy kind of kind of left off on on, on sort of the importance of, of like support system for a project, whether it's a pilot or whether it's a scale up. I think it really it really signified kind of like the role of, of an mHealth coordinator. mHealth is mobile health. And, and I, I don't know if in 2012, if that was like a popular term, but it, but it is like, it is one that's, that's widely required for any sort of like digit deployment around the world. And, and it's something that, that sort of, you know, common speak now in, in the ICT for, for D space. ICT for D is information and communications technology for development. And having like a clear designated role and having a team to like support users using digital systems is is so key because right now we, we, we may have sort of, I guess, like perfected or gotten to a really good sense of how deployments can be successful. Like all, all, all the effort that, that goes in to make sure trainings are done well and so on and so forth. But, but ultimately, if the local organizations and, and the organizations that want want the system to succeed, if, if they're not playing that role of support, those users will, will probably lose out in, in, in the long run and probably won't see sustained usage of, of the system. So for me, it, it really spoke volumes in terms of how much support is required and, and how, to, how to actually make that sustainably like sort of feasible for, for organization to incorporate it into, into their programs in, in the long run. Yeah, I think she she mentioned this in the in the last point. And I'll just zoom in on it a bit, a little bit. But really, I think what I saw during this phase reinforced for me in a way that I think will stay with me probably forever. The that the, the importance of good trainings, and I think just the just the need to be thinking about this humanly. I mean, you know, we we think about this in all these other ways, right? Like just think about when we learn things and go to I don't know, you sign up for a course in Coursera, or you're watching a cooking show to learn how to cook something, like. All of us learn in different ways and are like absorbing information in different ways. And especially when it comes to technology, we learn differently. You, you just teach people different things in different ways. That Just not underestimating the depth and breadth of experiences that you might be training to, I think, is critical. Someone had made a joke about this when I joined the Magni, but... I kind of took it seriously and tried to like teach my grandmother Comcare or explain like what we did and how to like use a phone and how to use Comcare on a phone. And I, I think that that is really critical. I think definitely identifying what it takes to do a good training in the right context and then investing in the collateral that is hopefully reusable just to like improve efficiency across like larger scale. But being motivating during those trainings, I think um, really not underinvesting in setting the stage. We would find in, in other projects that I did after that, it was very easy for partners to 
reasonably kind of immediately jump to the idea of like, this is our program, this is what we're trying to do, and this is how we collect data. And we'd be like, we should spend a day before that just introducing what a phone is and like how to turn a phone on and off and how to tell if it's charging correctly. And of course, that that context window might have shifted as as technology has pervaded more into deeper nooks and crannies of all over the world. But I still think that that window needs to be looked at and that you keep both ends in mind when you do those trainings. So I really feel like the our interactions with users after that was heavily dependent on how comfortable they felt with the application. I think you lose that on both their actual performance and, and how they're going to interact with the system, but also really valuable feedback that you could get from them. The better someone understands the system, you'd be amazed at how good the feedback you can get about, wait, why, why is this question being asked at this point or in this way and why not in that other way? Because they're able to map that it actually can be asked in that other way because it is in a different place. And that that level of feedback from a user is it's really gratifying to see when they are able to internalize that. And I think um, trainings, and it doesn't have to be one time, like regular trainings and engagement on that basis can really unlock that. I love both of those. I think one piece that stands out to me is just kind of where the overall, where this fit or situated both for Demagi's kind of growth and, and learning, as well as kind of where the broader industry was and the ICT for D community. I think when I think about Div2, I'm like, this is a bunch of pilots, pilot projects that we hoped would scale up or we were learning a lot from these pilots. And I think a lot of these organizations learned a lot as well about kind of how to think about the role of technology. This was a, a period where there was a lot of incentive to, you know, design a program and then add on generic mHealth innovation to be determined or to just insert kind of an, an add-on like that, which wasn't fully integrated into the program or wasn't clear kind of where, where the value was going to be. And then this is also kind of around a time where there began to be a lot of pushback against pilots. Maybe that was a little bit after this. There was this moratorium, I think in Uganda, against no more mHealth projects, no more digital projects like that. And hearing stories of community health workers carrying free phones from three different programs and not having to be harmonized. And, and that definitely uh, makes sense that it's like a poor use of, of time and resources and duplicating work and, and things like that. But I think the, this kind of model shows that there's a lot of potential value to be had and and thoughtfully executed pilots, both, you know, from our side as the technology and implementer partner, as well as from the many of the, the people that we work with and and from, our, you know, from these NGOs or from these, from the community health workers themselves kind of being able to learn along the way. And so even for those projects that didn't pan out, I think there was a lot of uh, learning for, for uh, everyone who was involved and so in, in defense of pilots, I guess. One of the things that was great just reflecting on hearing all these stories is how different of an organization we were at this time and how we worked and operated and partnered, but also how many of the lessons learned and approach and philosophy is consistent with what we do today. I think one of the takeaways for me, just hearing this and reflecting back on what it was like 10 years ago, is we had a extremely ad hoc communication style and it worked excellently at that time. You know, as, as everybody said, we would, everybody would send out a field report once a week. That's a lot of emails going out and most of us would read all of them. And to Jeremy's point, you would literally be learning week to week and then adapting that, putting them on the field and learning more. That would be crazy at 260 people now to be doing that, but it was perfect for the size we were at the work we were doing at that time. And I think that, you know, it, within individual people, as they have ebbs and flows of energy and projects and, you know, spike in productivity and would have lulls. Recognizing that organizations do that as well was something I was reflecting on as I was just hearing all these stories of, you know, what works for a particular organization at a given time that evolves. And to Jeremy's point, that doesn't mean you 
never do pilots or only do scale projects. But as we've grown, having to take these lineups and then right size our approach based on project size, the approach, um, you know, what was made a ton of sense for us during this dip period stopped making as much sense when we were going to national scale in several countries, one of them being India. And that I think took us longer to recognize in, in our approach. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a future episode as well, but it was so much fun and, and so, so exciting at this period. And it was exactly what we needed to do because maximizing our learning velocity was probably the most important thing for Damagi to be doing at this time in terms of the long-term success of our vision. And, and that's certainly how we structured the organization was to maximize our learning velocity, possibly at the expense of, of London banks, but it was great to hear these stories and, and definitely brought me back to a lot of the, the early days of, of what we were doing with Div. John, what was the impact of this whole project? And did USAID and the Div program ever do any measurement of the impact? Yeah. One of the other exciting things, in addition to the learning velocity, was the huge impact that this led to. Obviously, it was core to getting Comcare off the ground. And the Div team actually did a social return on investment report that we can link to in the show notes uh, that found that Comcare was one of the most cost-effective investments Div has ever made at a 24 to 1 uh, social return on investment, which we were really excited to, to see. And so we'll drop a link to the report um, for that as well. But I think Div also got a you know, huge bang for the buck on this investment as well. Thanks so much for joining us for today's show. And thank you to Kriti, Jeremy, and Shree for joining. So I wanted to share a couple takeaways before I close. First, if you're a social enterprise in the space and looking for funding, definitely do check out USAID's DIV program. Second, pilots can have tremendous value to create rapid learnings, and they also carry a lot of risks. So choose your partners wisely, ensure they're doing a pilot for the right reasons, with a commitment to implement for the long term, and really be sure that you're carrying those learnings forward. Three, overinvest in training and ensure you're covering the basics in your training, which may include digital literacy, depending on where your users are at. Four, if you're rolling out a digital intervention, you have to be clear that it's adding value and not just burden for the users. And also be really thoughtful about how you're sharing data, who you share it with, and how they're going to use it to improve outcomes. And fifth, organizational practices need to evolve depending on where you're at as an organization. Some practices may make a ton of sense during a period of rapid learning, like the one we talked about today, but they're not going to make sense as the organization grows. So just being mindful of where you're at as an organization and how you can design systems and learning mechanisms to ensure that you're moving forward. That's it. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, share it with anyone you think might benefit from it, and write to us at podcast at if you've got any ideas or questions. Thanks so much.